0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Costa Mesa, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling, with numbers specific to Costa Mesa, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Costa Mesa. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. The following is part two of six parts of the class Overcoming Obstacles for Real Estate Investors. Be sure to check out the other parts published as separate episodes. All right, so let's go over down payments. This is the challenge. Challenge is, I can't come up with down payments. I don't have down payments to do deals, whatever it is. This is the challenge we're gonna discuss right now. So in my mind, when I think about this problem, it's not just down payments. It's really down payments plus closing costs plus reserves. Because for you to go and invest without reserves, it's kind of silly. And for you to invest and not, and not have enough for closing costs, you really need more than just down payment. So it's really all the money in order to acquire and hold on to the deal. Um, so if you were thinking, hey, I don't have enough money for reserves, consider this list to be the same list that you would use for reserves. There's two primary groups for solving this problem. There's the strategies to reduce the need for a down payment, So I can solve this problem for you one way and say, well, let me tell you all the different ways that you don't even need down payments to do this. So we can go over all those and we will. And then there's all the strategies to actually produce the down payment that you might need. So let's go over both these. So let's talk about reduce first, reducing the need for the down payment. So that you don't even need the down payment maybe, or you need much less of the down payment. So the first one, really, really obvious minimize price you minimize your down payment. If you're gonna go look at properties and you've been looking at $500,000 properties, maybe you go to a different market and you look at $400,000 properties or $300,000 properties or $200,000 properties or $100,000 properties. But if you reduce the price you're looking at, you can reduce the amount you need for down payment. Next one is bring in a partner who has down payments. So if you don't have enough for down payments, you can reduce your need for down payments by finding someone who does have down payments and you can reduce that uh, need for yourself, okay? There are lots of people out there that they don't have the time or the knowledge or the expertise or the desire to go out there and find deals, but they have the down payment and they're willing to partner with somebody who has that time. You just gotta go find them. And we'll talk about finding them in the other, uh, the other section where we talk about finding. Plus, all of these nothing down financing options. So here are all the different strategies where you can acquire properties with nothing down. You can use hard money loans. Usually, not always, it's 70% of the after-repaired value. It's usually not owner-occupant. Most hard-money lenders, because they want to remain commercial lenders, will not loan to you as an owner-occupant in a the property. They tend to be shorter term. You're not usually getting hard-money loans or you're not usually wanting to have hard-money loans for more than you know, six months at a time, something like that. They can be a little bit longer. They can be a little bit shorter, depending on who you get it from. They're usually at a higher interest rate, and they're often used for doing strategy where you do the Burr strategy. If you watch the whole class we did on the Burr strategy, buy, rehab, rent, refinance. And then if you have the fourth R there, it's also repeat. So you can do strategies for that. So hard money is one strategy. You don't need to have down payment. Some hard money lenders might ask you for a down payment, but most of them are not, or they're gonna have limited ones. Uh, private money. Private money and hard money are different in that hard money are people that are in the business of loaning money. So you know, they, they're used to making real estate loans secured by the property. Private money is when you go have a Thanksgiving dinner and you talk to grandma and she's like, I got my money in the CD and it's earning 1%. Um, and you're like, I'm flipping houses and I'm paying someone the 9%, 10%, 12%, 15% in order to borrow the money there. She's like, man, I would be happy with 5%. And you're like, grandma, you got a deal. I will go ahead and borrow money from you and I'll pay you 5%. And so now you have a private money lender, someone that you know, that's part of the definition. It's usually someone that you, you already know um, who's willing to loan the money for that. And the terms are going to vary wildly because it's a private loan between friends and family, usually. So it's really up to you and how you negotiate that, whether it's interest only, whether it's, you know, all the money's out all the time. If you use it and give it back and pay it back, if, if, if it's, you know, higher interest rate, lower interest rate, the term of the loan, all that's negotiable because it's a private individual and you're negotiating all the details yourself. And those can also be used for that burst strategy that we've covered before. And then another nothing down loan, USDA loan. USDA loans is US Department of Agriculture. They are rural properties only. So you have to be in an area that is qualified for USDA. You can look it up on the USDA website as to whether or not uh, someone is, is whether a particular house is in the USDA area. Um, Around here, um, one of the cities is Windsor. That actually qualifies for USDA. I think parts of Greeley do. Um, Wellington does. So severance does. So those types of cities, they have to be pretty rural, um, in order to qualify for those, but those are true. Nothing down loans. You do need to owner occupy them. So you're probably doing something like a nomad strategy for doing, um, USDA nomad strategies where you move into a property, you live there for a year, you get owner occupant financing, which is lower down payment usually, and much better interest rates. A lot of times you'll have PMI. If you put less than 20% down, which is fine. You calculate that in and usually it's still better. Um, But you move in for the property for a year. And then once you live there for a year, then you convert it to a rental. And so you're able to acquire property with, in this case, USDA loan, nothing down. And then you're able to acquire rental property that way. So if you needed a way to buy properties without down payments, that's one example of how you could do it. And so all USDA loans, as far as I know, are owner-occupant only. Cannot do them with investments. VA loans. So you must have VA benefits. VA benefits. Uh, You must have served in the military or had some um, very close family member. I think spouses can get VA benefits, especially if their spouse passed. I I don't know the exact criteria, but I think it's stuff like that. Um, But you have to have VA benefits to do it. That is also a nothing down loan program. It's probably one of the best loan programs out there, honestly. Um, And it's not like you need to be in a specific area. Uh, It's not like a rural property. It's you, the person needs to qualify for the VA financing. And so you can buy those with nothing down. And they can also be used for multifamily. So if you want to do a strategy like the nomad strategy or house hacking strategy where you're living in the property and renting out other parts of it, you can use the VA loan in order to acquire single family homes or duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes if you want to acquire those. And so you can acquire a property, nothing down, and then rent out a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. You can't do five units or more. Those are considered commercial buildings, okay? Um, and then some local banks have nothing down loan programs as well. So you can call around to some local banks, see if you can find an additional one if you don't like any of the other four up there. Any questions on nothing down financing? In addition to all of these nothing down financing strategies, there's all of the off-market creative financing deals. And we did an entire series of classes on some of the creative financing stuff. In fact, we did one on just creative financing alone, and it included stuff like buying properties subject to the existing financing, where you uh, agree to buy a property from a seller and the seller leaves their existing financing in place. So you buy the property, they deed you the property. That's the, that's the uh, transfer of ownership. Um, that's how you tell who owns the property. And then they leave their loan in place. So you could buy that property with nothing down. You can acquire that property that way. That's buying a property subject to the existing financing. We have a whole class on that. Uh, owner financing, where the seller owns the property free and clear, and you go in there and you agree to buy the property from them. And in some cases, you may be able to buy the property where they do not need a down payment at all. They're willing to sell you the property with nothing down and get owner financing from that in order to be able to purchase it. Uh, all the lease option stuff. So you lease the property and you have the option to buy it. You agree to rent the property from somebody and you have the option to buy it in a year or two. And with some of those, you could probably buy them with little or nothing down. The caveat to some of these is in most cases, you're probably wanna invest some money in marketing in order to find these deals. But if you think about it, if you're spending 2000, $3,000 in marketing in order to find an off-market deal that kind of meets your criteria, you might spend that just to get the loan cost uh, for the loan that you're getting, right? You know, appraisal fees and, you know, um, the, the cost of origination fees in order to get the loan to begin with and your closing fees. So it doesn't really, when you kind of compare it to those that you might have with even a traditional purchase, they still can be really reasonable properties to acquire. Any questions on these? Nothing down financing. And we're still in the part where we talk about the reducing the need for down payments. We haven't even gotten to the part where we're talking about how you raise down payments. Any questions? Man, you guys are really quiet. Okay, so producing down payments. So here are down payment sources, and I've listed them in primarily like my least desirable at top to probably my most desirable toward the bottom. And you could argue that some of these could be swapped around depending on your specific situation and stuff. But here's kind of how I look at them. So it, it, a source of down payment could be what I call, quote, investment cards. They're credit cards, right? I mean, but, you know, if you were using them to buy properties, you could call them, you know, investment cards. Where, you know, when I, when I bought a property once, I had, um, I don't know, I had like $55,000 in a credit line on a credit card. And at the time, you could write a, a, like a check to yourself in order to do it so i wrote myself a check for 50 something thousand dollars and i used that money in order to buy a property and then i you know did some rehab to the property and then i ultimately did like a burst strategy where i, I cashed it out and i got a long-term loan on it and i paid back the credit card so you can use credit cards to do something like that um, during one class in a moment of weakness i actually told you the alternative way to use credit cards in order to raise down payment money um, which I will not recover here because I definitely do not encourage you to do this. But it is there. It's an Easter egg for you guys. I left it in the recording when I published a class. How many people know what I'm talking about when I said that it's in class? Do you guys remember seeing this? Okay, you, you do remember it? Or you, okay, don't talk about it. But, but yes, it was definitely in the class. I talked about the strategy for using your credit card very creatively in order to come up with down payments. Go find another class to do that. So normally I, I won't really recommend using investment cards, credit cards to do your down payments. why it's the top of the list. It's like my least favorite strategy for doing this. Um, another way to do down payment sources, security deposits. Again, I don't really recommend this either, but you acquire enough rental properties. You probably have a certain amount of money from security deposits sitting in your bank account that you could at least in theory use in order to do down payments in order to acquire properties. Again, not something I'd recommend, but you could do it. A similar thing with maintenance reserves. If you're keeping you know, six months or 12 months worth of reserves per property in the count, and you've got just sort of sitting there, some people may be tempted if the right deal came around to say, look, I'm going to temporarily go really lean on my reserves and use part of these in order to go fund the purchase of a down payment on a new property in order to acquire it because the deal's so good and I don't otherwise have the down payment. And then I'm very aggressively going to replace those maintenance reserves with money. And if things really, really got bad, I do have extra source of reserves somewhere else. You know, maybe it's a credit card or maybe it's a line of credit or maybe it's a HELOC or something like that. So you could do something like that. So maintenance reserves, another one. Uh, property equity. So if you've got equity in other properties, you've got a free and clear property, you've got a property that you can do a, a cash out refinance on. Maybe it's an investment property to do a cash out refinance. Maybe it's an owner-occupant property that you have. You can do a cash out refinance on. But any of those things where you have property equity in other properties that you could do, you could either sell those properties, you could refinance them. Or in some really creative cases, you may be able to pledge the equity in a property uh, in order to have a owner financing seller agree to um, you know, do the property. If you say, look, I'll I'll give you a lien against my other property in, in lieu of a down payment in order to buy your property, something crazy like that. Uh, depreciation, so depreciation is the tax benefits you get by owning a rental property, has to be a rental property. And usually it, it, forms in the, it, it, it comes in the form of um, reduced taxes that you need to pay in at the end of the year. Although you could actually go and adjust the, um, whatever they call that, I should probably know the name of this by now, But you know, when you have a job and you figure out how many exemptions you have, you fill out that form and you hand it to your employer and that determines how much they take out in taxes so that you don't get hit with a big tax bill at the end of the year. Well, if you have a bunch of rental properties, you could adjust that number. Well, I should say it this way. If you have a bunch of rental properties where you normally get a big tax refund check at the end of the year, you could adjust those numbers so that you get less of a check at the end of the year and you actually get more back in your paycheck each month or each week or each two weeks, whatever you get paid at. Um, And so you could actually get the money sort of as more immediate cash flow. But a lot of folks, when they acquire rental properties and they leave their earnings things in place, at the end of the year, they end up getting a much bigger refund check back because they end up doing their taxes and the depreciation gets all benefited to them at the end of the year. So you can almost think about any tax refund check you get, although I specifically talk about depreciation here, you can look at that as a source of down payment money for when you're acquiring property. So depreciation would be a way to do that. Uh, Retirement accounts. So, if you have a retirement account, maybe you switch that over to be a self directed retirement account, or maybe you take some type of loan against the retirement account and you do that. Uh, family members, if you're doing Legacy Nomad, Legacy Nomad is when you're acquiring properties and, um, you know, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are are actually loaning you the money or we're gifting you the money. And they're not usually loaning to you too. Usually gifting you the money in order to be able to acquire properties, maybe for estate planning reasons. They're like, look, you're going to get something when I pass anyway, I might as well give you $20,000, $50,000, whatever it is in order to do a down payment on this property while we're still alive, sort of clean our estate, help you now sort of situation. So family members could be doing that or doing nomad by proxy. You know, maybe You know, Mom and dad want to invest in real estate, and you're willing to be the person that moves into the properties, and you guys agree you're going to split the property 50-50 or whatever you agree to. So you're you're part of it. As you move into the property, you live there for a year. Mom and dad provide the down payment for you, and now you're a 50-50 partner with mom and dad in a property where you're doing nomad. We call that nomad by proxy as an example. Uh, So that's another one, family members. Sell stuff you don't need or want. I'm sure you guys got a lot of stuff that you don't need or want. I mean, you could sell it, you could raise some money pretty quickly with that. Um, May take some effort, but that's something you could do. And if you're gonna be nomading, that's super helpful to actually get rid of all the clutter so you don't have to move it all. Now we're getting to the normal ones, right? You guys should have thought, you should have saw this one coming. Saving money, okay? Uh, From a regular job, from a part-time job, maybe you go get an extra job and the extra job money is the one you use for saving up for down payment. Um, You know, maybe you start a side business to kind of build your retirement or build your fortune or doing something like that. Um, That's an example of just ways to save money. Uh, Partnering. So go find a partner who has a down payment and be able to do deals that way. And then rents on properties, including house hacking. So you can use rents you have in other properties. Maybe you change the investing strategy you're doing short-term in order to raise money from um, you know, being able to do these down payments. Like for example, you were doing long-term rentals. Maybe you to convert it to short-term rentals to get a lot of extra cash flow, at least for a temporary period of time until you have enough to be able to do your down payment. Or let's say you don't, you don't own any property right now, but you really want to raise down payment. Well, one of the things you could do, as long as it allows it in your particular lease, is you could sublease a part of your house that you're living in. It's called house hacking. Basically you buy a property, or in this case you're renting a property and you lease out your bedroom uh, to somebody else who wants to pay you five or $600 a month, $800 a month, whatever it is in your marketplace, and then you actually collect that money. The good thing about that too is, and Austin can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but I believe that if you have that on your tax return for a year or two, you can actually use that income to help you qualify for when you get your loan. So that could be a way for you to not only get extra income for down payments, but it could also help you qualify with your debt to income when you go to qualify to buy the property, and you bring your roommate with you if you want to when you buy the new property and move out of the rental to do things like that. And then finally, lease option fees. So when you buy a property, um, you can actually lease option it to a tenant buyer, someone who wants to live in the property and buy it from you a year or two or three down the road. And a lot of times they will give you a large option fee up front. It's completely negotiable as to what it is, but it could be $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000. I'm trying to think of what the largest option fee I've ever received was. It's gotta be in the $20,000 range. So, you know, depending on what you need, that could help you a little bit when you're doing that. I did a whole series of classes. In fact, I wrote a book on this, but I did a whole, um, a whole series of like modeling investments where you um, acquire one property in some form or another. Maybe it's a Nomad uh, property where you buy it with nothing down, but then you convert the property that you were living in after you lived there for a year to a lease option exit property. And you put a tenant buyer in that property when you're leaving, and they provide you with the down payment you need in order to acquire the next property that you're buying. So you can could, you could do the entire Nomad strategy where you're using the previous property you owned to provide you with the down payments you need for the next property by doing lease options on the one you're leaving out of. So you can eliminate the need for down payments completely doing that strategy. And I did a whole, I did, I did this, I taught that class like five or six times. So there's gotta be a recording of somewhere online. Um, and if not, I'll probably do another one for the new podcast. And in addition to that, I wrote a book on it. I think the book was called, I think the book was called How to Acquire a Multi-Million Dollar Real Estate Portfolio Starting with Just $3,000. And I think, the think my thinking on it was, the $3,000 was like a um, closing cost and stuff to acquire the first property. And then you use the tenant buyers to pay the option fee in order to move on to the next property each time. And I show you acquiring a whole bunch of properties that way um, until you get to the point where you're acquiring. Um, more than one property a year because when, they, when the tenant buyer cashes you out and you get some profit from that property, you use that to buy 20% down properties or 25% down properties in the future. So there's a whole bunch of strategies around that. So that's all I got for uh, producing down payments. Any questions on the challenge of, I don't have a down payments, I need down payments, all that stuff. Did I cover it pretty thoroughly in a really short period of time? So I usually do this in two hours and 30 minutes where I really go into detail. Like everything, yeah, Bill. Yeah. So say credit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, because you have to be able to cover the payment out of there, or you got to you got to think to yourself: look, either the property needs to support the down payment or the uh, the monthly payments on the credit card, or you think to yourself: okay, the monthly payments I'm paying on the credit card are the savings rate I'm doing in arrears. Like I already bought the property. Now I'm kind of having to make up the savings that I didn't have in order to come up with a down payment to begin with. And so you're paying that out of whatever else you have. Maybe some of it's from cash flow on the property acquired, but the rest of it's coming from you until you pay that thing off. So no, I don't think oftentimes that makes a lot of sense. Same thing. Yes, because you're acquiring a property and you're trying to convert that to some type of reasonable long-term financing in most cases. No, the security deposit one is, most of the time, you never have to come up with the security deposit, unless, unless they leave the property in bad condition, and then you keep it anyway, right? And then you got to come up with the repair money instead. But the security deposit, when you get another tenant in, they give you another security deposit. You usually have a period of time, 30 days, 60 days, whatever it is in your marketplace, in order to have to give that other security deposit back. So you get the new one in, you're sort of replacing it. It's, it's an accounting entry more than anything else. So That one is a little bit different than the uh, hard money and the uh, investment credit cards sort of things. Yes. Okay. So what she's talking about is, nope, what she's talking about is if you are a licensed real estate agent, that is required. You must keep it in a separate trust account to do that. If you are not licensed as a real estate agent, you do not need to keep it in a trust account. It's not a bad idea, but you do not need to. It's not required by law. Yeah. But as a licensed real estate agent, you absolutely are. Are you licensed? (laughs) Yep. If you if you if you are licensed, regardless of whether you do property management, you must do the escrow account. Does yeah, including security deposits, even if it's just for your own property and you only got one, you have to keep it in the escrow account. Yeah. Any questions? All right, cool. Most of them, a lot of these properties already have them. Some of them do. I mean, investment credit cards does not. Um, Retirement account does not, family members does not, sell stuff does not, saving does not, partnering does not, um, lease option fees do not. I mean, you can use lease option fees when you're buying the property that you're moving into. You go. You could go advertise to find a tenant, buyer, a tenant buyer upfront and say, look, pick any property from the MLS. Uh, you're going to need to come up with the down payment, but I'll sign for the loan and we will apply that towards your purchase. Right? You could do that. It's a, it's a much more unusual person to find, but you know, we're not looking for trying to do this a million times, right? This is like jumpstart it. And I don't have the down payment to get started. I could do that type of marketing until I find that one person. And in the meantime, I'll look at all these other strategies at the same time. Remember the wall example? This is like, let's solve it. Okay. So yeah, I'd say half of them. Half of them do, right? About that. I mean, maybe I'm off by one or two, but it's not that many. You can count them up and tell me if I'm off. But right. It's sort of like thing. Yeah. All right, cool. Any other questions on this? Is that helpful? That's solving your problem. No? No? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could borrow against your own life insurance policy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I, I forgot about that. Um, I, If I remember to listen to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I should have known that too. I've got a client who does that. Um, yeah, I probably should have listed that on my list. If, if I ever listened to my own recording or uh, for some reason uh, somebody was willing to email me to remind me to do that, that'd be great. And I will, uh, I will definitely add that to my list because that's when it should be on there. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. So there's some variations on that, but it can be used with sort of that infinite banking. And I'd have to really stop at and think about what the infinite banking is because I learned about it and read a bunch of books on it, but I haven't actually implemented it myself. And so I want to think about like how it all works. But I think it's related to that concept of you get the life insurance policy. Once you get enough money, then you can borrow the money from yourself and you kind of keep your money constantly compounding and stuff like that. But yeah, I'd have to really think of it through, but maybe. The definite maybe on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Any other questions? This concludes part two of six of overcoming obstacles for real estate investors. Listen to the next episode, part three of six on overcoming negative cash flow.